it is my hope that Americans realize that we have the access to this incredible, astonishing talent throughout the world. And this talent is available to us at a cost that is so low that anyone, even without owning a business, should have a virtual assistant. One of my key arguments is, the key mindset that you need to understand is everyone should have a virtual assistant. You don't need a business for that. They are incredible improvers of the quality of your life. You'd ask them for whatever you needed. And I think you need to change your mindset to ask your virtual assistant to do the same because I have found that they're completely capable. We are the problem. Listen, too many successful business owners spend most of our waking hours working in our businesses in order to keep the money flowing and protect everything we put in our one basket. We're making great money, but we still yearn for that truly passive, earn-while-you-sleep income we desired when we first went down the entrepreneurial journey. We could put it back into our businesses, but then the cycle seems to continue. Our goal really should be to have multiple income streams that don't rely on our daily involvement. The problem is we don't know where to put it or who to trust. This show focuses on ways business owners and professionals can put their hard-earned profits to work so your investments help reduce your tax bill and produce truly passive income today that you can enjoy. We're going to discuss business, tax strategies, entrepreneurial journeys, and investing in assets that make sense to business owners, all while not giving up control to Wall Street or a financial advisor. I'm Brian O'Neill, and welcome to the Harder Working Money Podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Harder Working Money Podcast. So we're in Scottsdale, Arizona, and we're with the one and only Neil Bawa. And in Scottsdale, what we're doing here is we're at the Adventures Investment Summit, which is 40 people that are here to mastermind on real estate and investments. They're operators, they're investors, they're up-and-comings or soon-to-be's, as well as a lot of experienced people. And we put on this mastermind along with the Montelongos, and we have some amazing guest speakers here. And the man himself is here, so I want to introduce you to Neil Bawa. Thanks for coming, Neil. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Very excited to be on. I appreciate it. Yeah. So we talk about real estate a lot on this podcast, but what I really, when I've seen Neil speak, I always latch on to his ability to execute things in business, in his business. He's a data scientist by by trade and nature, but he takes that that insight and then executes it into operations and tasks and systems that he's able to use. So I wanted to just focus on your use of VAs, because you're like my inspiration for VAs. And I've, I've followed your processes you put out there to start to use them. And when I start to mention that to just business owners or the, the guy that owns a, a company, maybe has 50 employees, or is a, a dentist or a service provider, they've always heard about VAs and people in the Philippines, but they don't really know how to use them. They think it's just something other people use. And I sometimes have a hard time explaining to them what a practical application is. Like, how does someone that's not using it for social media or using it for, you know, marketing, which I think is what a lot of people that don't use VAs think all they can do. So I just want to get like your perspective on someone that's out there running a main street business. How can they open their mind to using VAs and some suggestions on like the first things to start with a VA? I'll happily give yeah. you suggestions. But before I do that, I think it's it's nice to fully understand the scope of what these people can do right? Virtual assistants are simply people that work for you remotely. And while that used to be a phantom concept for most Americans, once COVID happened, during COVID, all of America was virtual, right? So everyone worked remotely. And so it is my hope that Americans realize that we have the access to this incredible, astonishing talent throughout the world. And this talent is available to us at a cost that is so low 
that anyone, even without owning a business, should have a virtual assistant. One of my key arguments is, the key mindset that you need to understand is everyone should have a virtual assistant. You don't need a business for that. They are incredible improvers of the quality of your life. They're, they can do all kinds of astonishing things. And I'll give you some examples that are really far left field, right? So I'm 50 years old, and recently I've started noticing that I've had lots of challenges with my calf, my hamstring, and, and other parts of my body that are just stiffening up over time because I had motorcycle accidents when I was in my, in my teens, and those are basically now getting to the point where they're creating problems. So I started doing research, and I realized that most people never fix these problems. They just live with them until they die because these problems are not quick to fix. They're, you can't fix them by going to the chiropractor for four sessions or going to Kaiser for, for two sessions. They actually take dozens, in some cases, hundreds of physiotherapy sessions to fix. And even though I'm well off, I grew up poor, so I have a middle-class mindset. So I'm like, well, Kaiser's going to charge me $150 an hour to basically do physiotherapy. But given that physiotherapy books all over the world are the same, they follow the American system, doesn't it mean that there's virtual physiotherapists out there? And the answer turned out to be the, the very best are actually in India. So yourphysio.in, that's Y-O-U-R physio.in, is a woman-owned business of 13 physiotherapist doctors, so doctors of physiotherapy. There, I was able to find the solution to my problem, which is I have so many problems in my body that I need several hundred sessions, which would cost maybe $30,000, $40,000 in the US to fix, right? And I would have to go physically travel to Kaiser or some other place to, to get myself patched up. Whereas yourphysio.in, I pay $360 for 30 sessions, so $12 a session. I've gifted them to everyone in my family. My father-in-law is also on yourphysio.in. And I've step-by-step step gone through my body, starting from my neck, downwards, where I've allocated 30 to 50 sessions to working on just one body part to permanently fix this, right? And this is happening where a doctor of physiotherapist is my virtual assistant because they're on video for 45 minutes. They're telling me exactly what to do and what, you know, what muscle to flex, and they're permanently fixing my problems, and I feel so much more alive than before. This is what is possible. I give this to you as a left field example so that you open your mind to what is possible with virtual assistants. I have one virtual assistant who spends one hour a day ordering and managing credit cards. So I travel around the world for free on first class, sometimes on business class, with a family of five. We travel all over the world. We've, we've traveled at least two dozen airlines. And we do this practically for free. Not 100% for free, but maybe 95% for free. Because what I've done is I have asked virtual assistants to watch a large number of videos on YouTube, especially by a guy named Sebi, Ask Sebi, check him out, um, that basically tells you how to hack credit cards and get very large number of points. And what I, all I do is I give the task to two virtual assistants, and then I ask each virtual assistant to write questions for the other virtual assistant after they watch. So that way they have to pay attention and know the answer. And then after that, the one that I trust the most has my social security number, orders a card every week. We use it in the business and we end up generally with three to 400,000 points a month, four to 5 million points a year. And that buys me about $50,000 a year of business class and first class travel. That has nothing to do with marketing. They're not using ChatGPT to write a blog. They're helping me live my best life. 
they don't just help me get there. They plan my entire itinerary. So I can, out of my pocket, take out a, a page that's going to show me going to this conference and then going to two other conferences that I'm presenting at tomorrow and day after. And the entire itinerary to the minute is mapped out. So I think the concept of using the word virtual assistant is the problem. These people are executive assistants. If you had an executive assistant as a business person and that person, he or she was in the next room over, you'd ask them for whatever you needed. And I think you need to change your mindset to ask your virtual assistant to do the same because I have found that they're completely capable. We are the problem. That's so true. The virtual assistant has a stereotype to it maybe as it's a low-skilled, just monotonous task-type position when really it's it's a replacement for many positions. But first one, I guess you would say, would be your secretary or executive assistant type roles. That, that's funny. The two things I thought about when you, you mentioned the credit card thing is I've watched those videos and then I've forgotten about what they said and I haven't put the time in to go implement all of them. I know they're out there. I just, it hasn't gotten a high enough priority yet. So why, why would I not give it to my virtual assistant? Go watch this. And what I like about you when you talk about virtual assistants is you always throw in these things like, oh, I have two VAs. I have them ask questions to each other. How, you, how you've perfected that remote work efficiency, basically. Neil also has presentations on things like how you track screens and they report in how much work they've had. So you, you have multiple checks and balances, which I... That, that's one of the key things I kind of pick up from you is like that, that last step to make it work. People say it doesn't work or the VA, you know, is working on the side for someone else. They don't know how efficient they're being. You add another process in there that sort of fixes that. Like you said, having one write a question for the other. That's because I've had bad experiences, right? So I, I've given tasks to VAs and they've either not done them correctly or they've done them once and then they've not followed up again. So my obsession is simply this. I never want to give a task to a virtual assistant I want to give a system and a process that runs by itself without my future involvement. How do I do that? Now, that's a hard question to answer, but I can tell you most important questions in life are hard and people solve them all the time. This Once I solved this question, the rest became easy and all of a sudden I could use virtual assistants or as I call them, Philippines team members, to do everything. Right, And there are a few things that I've found that, you know, few efficiencies that are more important. Number one is that you should always hire more virtual assistants than you need because you need to challenge yourself on how to make them busy. Initially, there's this feeling of what am I going to ask them to do? And a part of the learning process is that you're the one retraining your mind. The virtual assistant knows what they're doing. They've, they've spent 10,000 hours doing the sort of things that you're going to ask them to do, right? They're not the problem. You are. So your mindset is the challenge. So you need to overhire and then challenge yourself to find things for them to do. And also say, stop saying to yourself, they can't do this. Yes, there are things that virtual assistants may not do or may not do well. But most of the time, there are solutions, there are workarounds to all of those situations. And I think that people really need to challenge themselves. Another way of saying this is, a virtual assistant is only as good as their primary. So I'm a primary and how organized I am in making them more effective, more efficient. One of the benefits of virtual assistants that we don't have here in the US is there is no big brother concept in places like the Philippines. So if I had an American employee and they are working from their home and I put a software on their computer to monitor every keystroke, I think that would get me in trouble. I think that is going to create negative buzz and I'm going to show up on glassdoor.com as evil, nasty employer, right? Well, that is simply not a cultural issue in the Philippines. So 
what you can do is you can put software on their computer. It's monitoring them, but you know, with clicks, things like that. And it's perfectly okay to have 10 of them and benchmark them using that software. Because I found that, so some people do put that software on their computer, but then what are you doing with it? What's the next step? Well, the first obvious thing that occurs to me is if I have more than one of them, let's compare them. And that's okay because they don't have a big brother culture. The next thing that occurs to me is now that I've compared them, shouldn't I make that information public? because then I don't have to do public shaming. I simply have to create a graph that clearly mathematically shows which ones are more efficient and which ones are kind of kicking back. And then I simply have to praise the person that's on the left side of that graph. When I'm doing so, it's clear to the people that are on the right side of the graph that they better move up the graph because if they're consistently at the bottom, bad things will happen, right? This means that no shaming is required and we're leading by praise. And, and these systems, are actually being worked on. These graphs are being created by the virtual assistants themselves. They are holding themselves accountable. Yeah, that's incredible, the way you build systems out. I think that's something that small business owners or just business owners in general that have hit this success point where like they built it, they're starting to make money, but they haven't been able to remove themselves from the company, which is where a lot of people just sit until they retire. That's sort of the person we're focusing on, is that it's a lot of, here's the problem, here's the person I'm going to, kick it to you figure it out and then they might figure it out but they don't build processes for it and repeating it like they may be, may be skilled and they can figure it out but you never remove yourselves it's not repeatable and i think that's something that you've done a very good job with vas i think that's the success of vas i think part of it is mindset right so you know today earlier today we were talking about my life mission mission 10k to build 10,000 townhomes and I already know that one year from today, I'm going to resign as CEO of Mission 10K. And you might say, why? If that's your mission and you want to build it over five years, why do you want to resign as CEO? Because, because I'm all about using manpower appropriately. And that does, really doesn't have anything to do with virtual assistants. I'm going to simply replace myself with a, with a CEO, and then I'm going to promote myself to chief strategy officer. So then I will only work on those parts of the business that will move it forward. And I will simply have nothing to do with the regular million things a day that a, that a CEO has to do. And that's the mindset. Most people actually would never want to resign from a CEO position voluntarily. But I think that there's actually, even being an owner of your own company is just a milestone. I think if you truly want to be happy and you truly want to be successful, your biggest job is to constantly work yourself out of a job. And virtual assistants, by the way, are a very, very powerful way to do that, right? Right now I have a mission, so I'm, I'm working pretty hard. But there was a time when I had gone down to 20 hours a week, but I was getting roughly 200 hours a week of stuff done. I'm the kind of person that needs a minimum of three executive assistants just for myself, because I saturate them very, very fast because I have them entangled in every part of my life, right? And I think that that is not very hard to do. It's just hard to start. So you mentioned earlier in your talk with the group that you keep experimentation in your company as sacred. And I was curious, what are a few of the things you're experimenting with right now? And maybe an example of one that you tried and failed? The current focus of the company for as far as experimentation, apart from the data stuff that you've already heard about, is uh, use of artificial intelligence. So each week we have a AI of the week meeting. And so the rules are as follows. So we give up a hundred bucks to the department or person 
that finds a new way to implement artificial intelligence or improves upon an existing way. Out of four weeks, marketing department can only win once because we found that the first time we did it, the first eight times the winner was marketing all the time. So now they can only win once in a month. And now we are seeing other departments, operational departments use it. For example, one of the most recent uses was that ChatGPT actually can uh, you can give it a bunch of data and then tell it to organize it in many different ways. Well, as you can imagine, the operations department is constantly dealing with all kinds of data and organizing in all sorts of different ways. And they basically have proven to me now that they're in their workflow is at this point, stop, go to ChatGPT, throw this data at it. ChatGPT organizes it, improves it, gives it back to us. This is something that we used to do in 45 minutes, and now we do it in four, right? So experimentation is in our DNA. And to make it part of your DNA, you need to celebrate failure. Because what holds people back from experimentation is the fear of failing, right? And, and I think that celebration of failure is really good. And so we tend to be overly uh, aggressive about that. And we'll basically have a failure of the week and we'll send it out on a Slack channel and say, hey, we tried this. It was an interesting idea. This is why we did it. And here's why we failed. And here's how we think we're going to try it again in the future right? Maybe, or maybe we wait for some critical point at which we try it again. So I think celebration of failure is really key to your experimentation DNA. And then calling out successes, right? So using, if you're, if you're using Slack for your company, just celebrating somebody that does something unusual and putting your money behind it, right? Nobody seems to have an issue with paying an a employee $50,000, $100,000. Then why is it that you don't permanently, permanently have a two to 5% allocation of their salary, whatever it is, in terms of future bonuses that reward appropriate behavior. I know large companies do this all the time. They have a structure around it. But why can't small companies do it? Oh, well, we don't make have enough money. That's just BS because you clearly had the money to pay somebody $100,000 or $80,000. I'm just talking about eighty-two. That last $2,000 is about incentivizing the right behavior. And one of the key behaviors that you should always incentivize is never be afraid to fail and never be afraid to experiment. And our company loves it when you experiment, even if you fail. Yeah, that's amazing. In my small businesses, I would say the times I was either forced to experiment or just trial and error, not, not even trial and error, just like COVID is a perfect example. Every single day we would come in and go, okay, we're going to try this. We're going to try this. That didn't work. We're going to try this. That improved those businesses more in six months than it did in the previous five years. Just because, first of all, we removed the fear of failure because it was so dire that we had to iterate quick and quick and quick. And I think it changed my mindset on business and experimentation and failure as well because I was basically forced to do it. Because I was probably one of those people that like, I don't want to try it unless I know it's going to work. And whether it was a money thing or not, it's just, I was willing to do it in my own life but not in the business. But then I would say co putting businesses through COVID, that's... And I think other business owners I've talked to as well would say the same thing. It was horrible to go through, but yet the amount of change and improvement that was made to anything, it doesn't matter if it was a service company or online or whatever it was, everyone had to like rethink everything. So it was probably a, a blessing in disguise a little bit. And it's something that's come up with other people I've talked to and just something I've always thought about as well. And it's a, it's a simple question. It has to do with when you see the, the graph of the affordability gap between renting and buying, it always maintains a fairly, over time, fairly consistent gap. 
And we obviously have strayed significantly from the, and for listeners that don't know, affordability gap is the gap between renting and buying, basically what the payment would be. And you're a numbers guy. I haven't memorized it. It's, I don't know, four or $500, $800, somewhere there, the average it maintains. And now we're significantly above that. Very much above. It's going to come back to the mean at some point. It has to. It always does. Is it going to, which one's going to move? Which one do you think is going to move given our current scenario with housing and our income's going to go up or is housing prices going to come down? Like is rent, are rents going to go up to follow it or housing's coming down or is it one of the both? Because they always have to move. I think something very unusual happened because of COVID. Yeah. The reason that the gap between the average monthly rent and the average mortgage stays within a certain band, if you look at the last 50 years, right, is at some point, if it goes, the gap grows too much, there's an incentive to do the other thing and bring the gap back down. It didn't happen this time. And the reason for that was COVID was highly unusual in that we only had a recession for three months, right? And even that recession was made up, right? Wasn't real. So the economy was doing really well, but interest rates were still at zero because people were still working from home and we were still you know, figuring out all the vaccine stuff. So we had a very, very unusual situation of Fed funds rate at zero, which meant interest rates were 3% in a booming economy. And we went through an extraordinarily large cycle of refinancing in this country. And so we are at the point where it makes absolutely zero sense for home prices to stay where they're at. They should come down. They must come down because obviously interest rates have gone from three and a half to seven. Now it, now they're at seven and a half percent. The thing that's preventing home prices from dropping quickly, and they should drop quickly, is the fact that we now have somewhere around 40 or 50 million homes locked in at extremely low interest rates. And those rates are locked in for another 28 years because they were 30-year fixed loans in 2020 and 2021. So they're locked in. So the people that are living in those homes, it makes absolutely zero sense for them to move. And so what COVID has done is it's frozen America, right? Early on in the pandemic, it increased mobility. People were moving. Well, then they started refinancing their homes. And now COVID's basically frozen people in place, right? Where people who have homes that are locked in at 4% can't move. Everyone else is moving and mobility is up because of work from home. But those people are not moving and that's preventing home prices from falling. Now, I happen to believe that despite the fact that they haven't fallen in the last 12, 13 months, maybe they've fallen 1%, I do believe that they will fall. But I think that they will fall very slowly because of this, this cushion that 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 we put in. So you're going to see a small decline in that monthly mortgage for two reasons. One is home prices will fall slowly. And the second one is uh, interest rates will decline slowly. So while I don't believe that interest rates are suddenly going to go back to some crazy low number, the Federal Reserve shows a dot plot and that dot plot clearly shows rates going down starting late 2024, then into 25, then into 26. So by 26, we should have reasonably low interest rates and also somewhat lower home prices. And that should bring that mortgage line, which the gap between the mortgage line and the rent line is the largest in history, and you should start to see it narrow a little bit. You're not going to see the rents go up a lot. We've seen an astonishing increase in rents in 2021. 2020, last 12 months, rent increases in the U.S. were zero, no increases at all. And I don't expect them to be uh, higher than 1% or 2% in 2024 or 2025. I expect there to be explosive rent growth in 2026, and we can talk about that. So for a while, that rent line is going to be fairly stable, and that mortgage line is going to slowly come down, so we should start to see the gap narrow, but it'll take a long time, longer than most people think. 
Okay. That's an interesting answer. So basically, they're both going to move. You don't expect it to be this giant correction because people have no reason to exit those houses. They will slowly, attrition will slowly force that to happen and things and will get closer back together. And we should see home together. prices either flatten out or slightly go down, right? We're, we're seeing slight decreases in home prices in, in a lot of markets. It, it's small. Uh, you know, I'm a multifamily guy, but I track home prices obsessively because unlike most multifamily people, I think that the multifamily market is just a adjunct of the bigger single family market, right? 66% of Americans live in homes and 33% of Americans are renting in some fashion or the other. So it's really part of a much bigger market. So I obsessively track single family and I'm fascinated by how different it is from the multifamily world. Yeah. Single family is basically your biggest competitor. That's where if they're not, they're not staying in multifamily, they're going in the single family. Absolutely. Okay. I said to jump in here real quick. Hope you're loving this episode as much as I am. So this show is sponsored by my company, Passive Capital Partners. If you agree with the ideas and philosophies we talk about in this show and you want to go deeper, visit business12th.com and sign up to receive monthly advice and investment opportunities that we tailor specifically towards business owners and professionals. All my content is also on social media, so follow me at Brian O'Neill Investor on all the favorite social media platforms. And don't forget, subscribe to the show on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. Okay, back to the show. Real estate super cycle. What's your opinion on it? Is it statistically relevant? It's actually a real thing. I don't know. Just what's your opinion on it? I, some people throw out some stats and some numbers. I was curious if it's actually true, you know what I'm talking about? I don't see sufficient evidence of a real estate super cycle. I think that what these people are talking about, if you really look at it at a 35,000 foot level, they're talking about a debt, debt super cycle. What I'm finding is the price of real estate in the United States is no longer driven by fundamentals. It's actually simply driven by what the Federal Reserve decides to do tomorrow. They take rates down, prices go up. They take rates up, prices go down, with this exception, COVID, which I just mentioned. But in general, there's external forces that are controlling the prices of assets. And in general, if you want to call it a super cycle, the simplest way to say it is this. Every government in the world seems determined to print more money each year than the year before, with no exceptions, by the way. I don't know of any government that is fiscally conservative or sound. Given that this is along an accelerating curve, also known as an exponential curve, this means that the amount of money that is being printed each year by the world increases over the previous year along a ever-sharpening curve. And because of that, fixed assets are always going to go up in value over time. That doesn't mean that they won't have bubbles. That doesn't mean that their prices won't adjust. But in the long run, if fixed assets, and I'm not even talking about real estate, any kind of fixed asset, if they went up 2% a year, they'll in the future, they'll go up three. And at some point, they'll go up four. And sometimes they'll go up five. That is the only possible result because as we print money, we're not just printing this way. We are printing along an exponential curve. And as far as I know, we've never had an instance in the world over a decade where prices of fixed assets did not track money printing. That's interesting. I have a vision in my head still from high school. I was in economics class when they still had economics classes. Um, or maybe they called it social studies back then. And it was the U.S. national debt in back 1996, I guess you'd say. It was this you know, parabolic curve they showed out into the 2020, 2030, like, oh, we'll never get there. And we're actually there. They actually, they, they, it's, not, it's nothing new. They, uh, they hadn't projected out what we were 
going to be doing if we didn't change things and we haven't changed things. We haven't. It just pops in my head of just, I still see that, that graph on that board of, what was that, almost 30 years ago now. We're, we're on a, that path. I still think that there are fundamental events that change the way we think. So for example, I believe that the Ukraine war has changed the way Europe thinks about security. I don't think that Europe will ever think again that it it can do business with Russia. Fundamental changes, right? It forced upon Europe, and they're basically changing their energy policy, changing their security policy, and starting to really pay money into NATO, which is something that they should be, be doing all along. In the same way, fiscal policy worldwide, which is driving up real estate prices, is going to have a reset when the first major economy can no longer sell its bonds. Debt crisis, yeah. So the chief candidates for that fiscal crisis are Japan and then China, Italy. These are countries that basically are currently Ponzi schemes, right? They can't be called a Ponzi schemes because technically a government is allowed to print money. But what happens when the government prints so much money that nobody wants to buy your bonds? And I think that one of these three countries is going to hit that reset. It will cause astonishing pain in these countries. And I think that that is the only thing that will bring the politicians of various countries to say, we do not want this level of pain and we have to take some sort of action. Until then, I'm bullish on any asset that's fixed. And a lot of people say, real estate is not a fixed asset. You can always build more. It's such a nonsensical idea because I I hear this all the time. It's an outrageous idea, completely outrageous. The first thing is this, this. We can build a lot more real estate in the United States, but do you know that the incremental cost of construction has to take into account the infrastructure? The United States built its freeway systems in the 50s and 60s. Then we enhanced it in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. In the last 20 years, we struggled to build one new freeway, right? One new freeway. No major city has built a new beltway in the last 20 years because the cost of infrastructure is so wildly, crazily out of control that nobody attempts to do it. So all we do is build a little here and a little there and one freeway off-ramp. All of the infrastructure that we have built, whether it's roads or pipes or electricity or gas, we're now utilizing. So the cheap land, which is inside of that infrastructure, is almost completely used up. To use the land outside cities have to do outrageous things. For example, here's an example. Inside of Idaho Falls, if you want to build a community, your permits might be $2,000 per unit. What if you want to build in a mile outside of, um, of Idaho Falls? Your permit costs are 20 times higher. Why? Because the city has to pay to take all the infrastructure to your, your community. So this, con- this concept that we have so much land in this country and we can just c- continue to build, build more real estate so it's not finite, is it truly nonsensical idea? Yeah, I guess you focus on the areas that have reached their capacity with water and electrical and sewer and roads and everything. And that's where the profit that, is in real estate, Yeah, right? And that's a perfect example. Like, that's the extreme. What would it cost to add more units there? Well, it's a lot. Well, that's what we will face. Like, there is, there is an end to when you cannot build more on the current infrastructure, which we all know. We haven't been working on for a long, long time. California would be a perfect example of you. California is a perfect example, yeah. but let, let's look at Texas, right? So look at Dallas, right? It's a red state. It should be very developer friendly. What part of Dallas has built a new freeway in the last twenty years? This problem is now a national problem because we funded infrastructure in the fifties and sixties directly through the federal government right? Now we've gotten to the point where the federal government is overburdened, so they can't basically print money. 
and the state governments are very burdened. They've got their own bonds. So who's going to fund the infrastructure that we need to continue to grow? Nobody knows. Yeah, they try to get developers to pay for it in incremental little bits, I you guess. You can do a little bit of that, yeah. right? So right now, the, the challenge is that for a while, developers were doing okay. Today, with interest rates high, development activity in the U.S. has slowed to a trickle. Um, I hear, the most common number I hear is that compared to 12 months ago, multifamily development in the United States has, has slowed by 71%. So if you were building 10 properties, now you're building three. Well, this is going to cause a massive shortage in 2026. It takes about two to three years for the shortage to appear when you stop building, right? And they were already very problematic because of construction cost increases. And now if you have to pay for the infrastructure, your property doesn't pencil out. So guess what happens, right? Uh, this problem is solvable, but it's solved in the worst way possible. We build a lot less, that increases the rents ridiculously, causing pain to everybody. And eventually the rents increase to the point where we can pay for that infrastructure and then build more. But that is the worst way of solving the problem, isn't it? Yeah. Regarding building, you're currently doing multifamily, but you're doing in townhomes and smaller structures. We always talk about apartments and efficiency and construction and units and everything else and maintenance. How is that affected in more individual units such as townhomes and things like that, how do you deal with the efficiency side of it? Or are they just as efficient as far as construction costs and maintaining them and everything else for build the rent? It's been an incredible epiphany for me because what I discovered was, in general, it makes sense that because townhomes are lower density than apartments, they wouldn't be as efficient to build, right? And I think that's generally true. But I found that people want to live in apartments and you can get more in rents and people stay longer so your profits are higher. So Townhomes. I mean, uh, townhomes. Yeah, okay. and, and so the approach that I'm now taking is I'm just going to go to places where land is cheap so I'm not worried about the low density. But construction costs are low so townhomes are actually very efficient. They're an extremely efficient product that competes against multifamily. So one of my favorite cities to build in is Idaho Falls. And my townhomes in Idaho Falls are $100 on average more expensive than an apartment with the same number of bedrooms. So if you have a three-bedroom apartment on a brand new property, it's $50.95. And if you have a three-bedroom townhome that you're living in, in my community, it's $60.95. That's how little of a difference there is in efficiency. It's still there. I can't say that that $100 difference is not there. But the truth is, it may even be possible to charge $15.95. It's just people will always pay more for townhomes than they will pay for, for apartments, so I can charge a premium, and that $100 is my premium. So I think in major cities, there is a big efficiency gap between townhomes and uh, apartments because of very high cost of land. But once you get beyond the major cities, the difference in efficiency is very small, and the biggest reason for that is this. Apartments use steel, and, and they have to use steel, especially if they're tall. Steel is very expensive. Townhomes, especially if they're two floors, are basically stick construction. And the U.S. is extremely, extremely efficient at high-speed stick, stick, stick construction. So you build them for a fairly low cost. Do you find that the renters stay longer in townhomes, yet less turnover? I have exact data. So my apartments, so we have you know thousands of, uh, of tenants in our apartments, they stay for 20 months. That's the current average stay. Uh, in our townhomes, people stay for 36. So 36 months. So it's a it's a very significant difference. A lot of people listening to this might be like, that doesn't sound like much of a difference. It's a huge vacancy difference. Vacancy loss, yeah. Right, because you got vacancy loss and then you have turnover cost. Mm -hmm. When you combine vacancy loss with turnover cost, that's a very significant portion of your profit. Yeah, I've learned that helping asset manage some projects. 
it's a vacancy. I mean, you have one month and there goes your entire year's rent bump, basically. So in your presentation earlier at the at the summit, you listed off some cities and you mentioned a city that piqued my ears up because we just moved to Logan, Utah. And I was wondering, just for my own selfish reasons, if you could reiterate your interest in that town and what sort of piqued it on your list. In general, you have to look at what works in Utah and a lot of places don't, right? So Utah is one of those states that I'm very bullish about for very straightforward reasons. I'm a demographer and Utah has the fastest growing population in the US because Mormons have lots of babies, right? And I, everyone gets a chuckle out of this, but you think about it, it's it's a very important thing. If you, if you have two states that you're comparing and one state has one and a half kids per couple and the other one has three, well, you're definitely going to have much more real estate needs in that second state. So it's extremely important that people don't think of this as a joke, right? So Utah's population is very fast growing, one of the fastest growing in the United States. Also, most people think of Utah as infinite amounts of land, and nothing could be further from the truth. The Most of the population lives along the Wasatch or Wasak front, and it's actually, on the one side, you have a lake, and the other side, you have a bunch of mountains, and so you actually don't have much usable land at all. The third reason is that the uh, Mormon church is the richest single entity in America. They're worth about $250 billion, and they love buying land. And they hold on to land for decades, decades, right? Their, their investment time period is unique amongst American institutions. And so they lock up entire citywide pieces of land for a very long time until they build a temple and then they start building stuff around it. And so Utah is very unique amongst uh, states in its land and construction scarcity, right? And so I look at, uh, I, I profile the whole state, right? Starting from Logan and then Ogden, then Salt Lake, Provo, Springfield, and then all the way down to uh, St. George. And I look at various markets to see where is the supply demand gap the worst and where is it likely to stay the worst because there's factors preventing it from get, getting better. Logan is a very a city that's very unfriendly to new development. They don't like new development. There's certain kinds of townhomes that they like because they're good looking, but they're very eclectic about it. The city is surrounded by hills. There are certain parts, portions that are so much sloping that the, the, the cost of construction would be hideous. So you can't really build on them. It seems like it's empty area, but actually most people don't understand that beyond a certain level of slope, you have to put retaining walls in and it massively accelerates your cost of construction. So you really can't effectively build anything there unless you're building McMansions. Yeah, they call it the bench. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So bottom line is when I look at the geographic constraints of Logan, the fact that people actually like Logan, right? And they, they move there. Um, the work from home benefits where there's certain families that have moved there that previously might have lived in Salt Lake or previously might have lived in Boise. It's just set up to become one of those cities that is going to just keep accelerating. Park City is unique amongst, you know, Utah cities in terms of its extraordinary prices. And I think people are looking for alternatives to Park City. The northern side of Utah, I think Logan is the alternative. On the southern side of Utah, it's St. George. Well, that's why we moved there. <laughs> we visited a bunch of cities around the whole the whole country. We traveled around an RV for a year and just spent months in places. And we ended up in Logan, actually. And it's it's funny it's funny you mentioned the kid thing too because it's so family and kid friendly because of the Mormon LDS part of it that even like we're not LDS, but it almost encourages you to have more kids because it's so much easier. Like the. The services there, facilities are the there, services, the schools. The support is incredible. When you go to a restaurant, people are annoyed if you have kids. They will actually like help you and like, oh, like it's not a negative thing. It's a positive thing. So 
it naturally creates a population growth just from the the vibe, if if anything, of Utah, which is interesting. It does, and you know, one other thing that uh, you might find funny is that in certain parts of Utah, the Mormon Church is a social security blanket. During COVID, the Mormon Church gave hundreds of millions of dollars to Utah to pay their their rent. And most of that money never came back, but the church is the richest entity in the U.S. And so it's almost a secondary social security net. And I think that's very powerful. Yeah, it definitely is. For the friends that we know that are LDS, there's a strong a strong network of people and money and you know people tithe and everything. And if someone gets in trouble financially or has other things going on in their life, they will step in. They're very strict about it, that's for sure. Like You're not going to be wasting any of that money, but they will definitely step in. So of the few statistics classes I took in college, the one thing that always stuck out to me every time I see a commercial or a news piece about, you know, people who drink red wine live longer. And I'm always just yelling like correlation versus causation. So one one tidbit I took away from that. And to explain what that is, I mean, obviously, you know better than I do, but basically like just because someone drinks red wine and live longer doesn't mean the red wine caused them to live longer. Maybe they they have more money, they work out better. People who drink red wine, maybe you're in different, live in different areas. You talk about correlation a lot when you look at statistics in real estate. Does causation not matter? It matters. And if you are a professional in statistics, there are ways to eliminate causation while looking for correlation, right? Causation is a constant problem. It's a constant problem, right? So there are ways to get around that. It's hard to describe that in a podcast except to say that because this is a well-known problem that what you're looking at as correlation might actually be causation. There are ways to guard against that, and there are statistical ways to prevent that from happening. I just don't know of a way to simplify it for you, but I'll think about one and maybe come back for the next podcast and say, this is how you prevent against the causation being the cause is to instead of correlation. Yeah, I knew that'd be a hard question to answer. For some reason, I just it came to my head. I was like, that's the one guy who might, who might have something to say on it's that. It's a challenge. Well, I appreciate it, Neil. It's amazing to be able to speak with you. I've followed you for a few years now, so to be able to sit down with you, I appreciate your time. Growcapitus.com, correct? I think the easiest way, actually, is the ecosystem is multifamilyu.com. Ah. Growcapitus is the name of the company that invests. So if you're an, an investor looking to invest money using our data-driven strategies, growcapitus.com. But multifamilyu.com is easier. There's an astonishing array of content that we produce every year that we put in there. About 25,000 you know, geeky, nerdy investors like us consume that content. It's free. It's always meant to be free. There's no charge. There's no upsell. There's no subscription. There never will be. Um, so our, our goal is to provide that content for free. And if, you know, most 90% of the people actually use it on their own and, and don't partner with us. The remaining 10% say, I believe in this content, I believe in these ideas, and I want to basically invest with these people when they're using this kind of information. And eventually, once you're part of our ecosystem, you'll see some offer from us and might be ready to jump. But I think the right place to start is multifamilyu.com, which, by the way, has a very powerful course on 10x your business using virtual assistants. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I've, I've watched a few of those courses. And having been having signed up for a lot of courses from other people, I'm always just like, ah, the promise of the tagline never really delivers. When you watch the video, it's always some sales pitch. You know, you never actually get the information you want. Yours are the opposite. I'm always surprised, like, man, he is just giving it all away here. And then at the end, he's like, oh, and, you know, if you want to continue on, you can. Otherwise, watch the next video. So we appreciate the the uh, the free information that you put a lot of time into, obviously. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me.